Very good. I don't think I've ever seen that row in another row except for the fourth one back. Wow. Okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you draw us together this evening to hear you speak to us. Please speak clearly. Please, please search our hearts. Please say something clearly to us tonight. Amen. So when was the last time that you had to tell something to someone that you knew they wouldn't want to hear? When was the last time you had to tell something to someone you knew they wouldn't want to hear? Wouldn't. Wouldn't want to hear. So it might be um, a friend at school who has hurt someone else and, um, and it's sort of up to you to, to chat to them. But you, you know that they're not going to want to hear what you have to say. There might be someone at work. I remember when I was an EP, um, my manager had to have a hard conversation with someone who wasn't pulling their weight at work and he, um, he left it, uh, he, he sort of pushed it away for as long as possible. He didn't want to have this conversation. When have you had to say the hard word to someone? Now I think we all have these moments where we, we should give the hard word, but it's hard. And whether we do it or not, I think depends on how much we care. How much we care for those who are being hurt by this person's actions. How much we care for the person who's hurting themselves by these actions. Whether we say something, whether we give the hard word, depends on how much we care for that person or the people being hurt. So last week, we, um, we watched on as Jesus, as God's king, as God in the flesh, enter his city. He, he, he was a king entering the city of Jerusalem. The, the, the king's city or God's city, and he entered it on a donkey's cock. So he, he was a humble king. He was a king unlike any other king who would try to show off their power and victoriousness. Jesus entered on a donkey's cult. And the first place he visited when he entered Jerusalem was the temple. Not, not wait a second, not the temple. I wanted to say his temple. Jesus is God come in the flesh. He's come to enter his temple. And he's going to give the hard word. And he's going to put offside people you just wouldn't want to put offside. As we do every week, we're going to make our way through the passage. So have the, the passage open before you. Verse 45. Luke chapter 19, verse 45. So when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written... He said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, I thought I'd put a picture in of Jesus clearing the temple. <laughs> um, here's a maybe more appropriate picture. Uh, <laughs> the temple mattered to Jesus. Uh, the temple for ancient Israel was to be a place of joy. It was a place uh, where the people would bring their heartfelt thanks to God for the to the God who gave them all things. It was to be a place of prayer, as Jesus said. It was to be a place of teaching where God would, uh, the priest would teach God's law and also God's love. And most importantly, it would be a place where the forgiveness of God was enacted through sacrifice. It was, it was the beating heart of the people of, uh, of Israel. But this, this sort of beating heart of the community had become corrupt. Uh, verse 46, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. 
Now, it's so easy for us to think of Jesus meek and mild. Yes, he's humble. Yes, he's servant-hearted. He's so servant-hearted that he cares about the people's spiritual health, which means he does what he does here. He acts. He speaks the hard word. Now, the people he was speaking to would have known that when Jesus said, you've made this house a den of robbers, they would have known that that is taken straight out of the book of Jeremiah, an Old Testament book. Now, the book of Jeremiah was, um, was written at a time in Israel's history when the leadership had become corrupt. So Israel's leadership, um, the priests, they were meant to be a blessing to the people. They were meant to teach God's law, his love, etc. But instead, they brought into the Holy of Holies, the center of the temple, they brought in foreign idols. Now, that's, that's not good if you're a priest. You're not meant to do that. But not only that, they made the, the, the business of, of priestliness or priesthood, they'd made that into a pro, for-profit business. They, they'd come into the center, as the book of Jeremiah describes, they'd come into the center with the foreign idols and they'd divvy up the, the, the earnings of the day amongst the leaders. Instead of giving it to the poor and, and, um, and sharing it amongst God's people, they'd divvy it up amongst themselves. And so the people who heard this word knew that Jesus was saying that that's the current health of the leadership. Jesus was giving the hard word. Our society has a word for people who do this. Um, People who give the hard word, especially when it costs, are whistleblowers. Uh, You might have heard of this guy, you might not have. This guy is uh, Frank Sapico. Um, so there are two movies made about this guy, one in 1973 and one last year. Um, Sapico was uh, an NYPD policeman in the 1960s, and his first taste of corruption was when he got a call from his girlfriend um, when he was off duty uh, saying that the next-door neighbour's uh, garage was being robbed. And he thought it was strange that the girlfriend was calling him when he was off duty. Why didn't she call the police? And then she said, because it's the cops... The cops have broken into the garage next door. Now, at the time, Sopiko says, everyone knew that there was police corruption. Um, He knew that there was police corruption. But the most tangible moment for him was when he uh, received an envelope in his hand, which was, of course, a bribe. That was a taste of the corruption Sopiko would uncover over the next 10 years. Um, Sapiko spoke the hard word against uh, the police system and in the process he nearly lost his life. Um, the movies will go into that. But that's just a taste of what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is giving the hard word in this passage to a corrupt temple system. What does this mean for us today? What does this mean, this, this event, Jesus clearing the temple, giving the hard word, what does it mean for us today? I think it means a few things, but it means that Jesus cares enough about us to give us the honest word when, when other people are too afraid to. Now, we have a relationship with the God we get to know through Jesus. And so because God's that type of God, he's passionate about truth, he he hates deception or corruption, because he's that type of God, we should be weary of being complacently comfortable in our walk with the God we see clearing the temple. If we're experiencing our walk with Jesus as just continually a walk in the park, we have to ask the question, are we following this God? 
there's a movie. Um, it, it's called The Stepwood, uh, Stepford Wives. It's a fascinating portrayal of relationships. Now, uh, Joanna is the main character in the movie, and she moves with her family to a town in America called Stepford. It was a picture-perfect town, like manicured lawns, beautiful big mansions. It was, a, it was a rich town. But something was wrong, she sensed. Uh, the, the wives uh, were just a little bit too um, uncomfortably submissive to their husbands. And so we find over time that the wives in this movie, they're not wives at all. They're robots. The husbands in this movie, these rich husbands, have worked out a way to make robots of wives, wives who do whatever they want them to do. But the whole point of this, the whole point of the movie is to show that the men in this movie aren't actually having a relationship with anyone. They're having a relationship with themselves. They've made a robot in their own image. They're not actually having a relationship with anyone. And I think sometimes... It's, it's, it's the human tendency to do that with God. We can create a God in our own image, just a little bit bigger. We can sort of create a God that we want, a God that we like, a God that just makes us feel good. A God that fits all our own categories. And so I bring this up now just because we should be wary when we're not made to feel uncomfortable when we walk with this God who just has no time for, um, for insincerity, for heart-hearted, half-heartedness, for corruption. And of course, we know our own hearts. We know that we too easily deceive ourselves. And so when we read God's word, when we come uh, to, to, to hear the word of God, the word of this living God in the Bible, when was the last time you were made to feel uncomfortable? A little bit are stretched maybe, or, or challenged to change your life. This, this holy God of light isn't, isn't, isn't satisfied with half-hearted loves. He wants our whole heart. And if we're not challenged in our reading of the Bible, well, um, the action of Jesus, it may be expressed one day to us. He wants our whole selves. But moving on, verse 47. Every day Jesus was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they couldn't find a way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So what will the leaders do next? They couldn't, they couldn't um, arrest him because the crowds loved Jesus, but they couldn't let Jesus get away with what he'd just done. They decide to ask a question. The question is, tell us, who put you up to this? Who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are? It's not an innocent question. These people are fuming. These people want to trap Jesus. These people want Jesus to say something like, God gave me the authority. Because if, they, if, if he says that, then they can prove from the Old Testament that God loves the temple. And so obviously you're blaspheming when you say, God's given you the authority. They want to trap Jesus. And so as Jesus often does, he responds with a question, a question that will sort of trap them in their own deceit. So verse 4, let me ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? If we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? 
But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Now, every so often I come up with something smart to say, but it's, it's, it's not always like two hours after the event and, and it's often like in the shower and I'm like, oh, could have said that. Jesus is quick on his feet. Um, and this reply isn't just to trap Jesus. He's actually answering their question. The referral to John's baptism was a clue. In, in Luke chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized by John, the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended, and a voice spoke from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Jesus was God's son. He was acting with the authority of the Father. Jesus answered their question, but he also got them tied up in their own sort of scheming. Which finally leads to the parable in verse 8. Some of Jesus' parables are a little bit confusing and they take a while for the people to understand what he's saying. But this parable is not one of those parables. This parable is dangerously clear. So we have an owner and a vineyard in this parable. The owner is, uh, is God, and the vineyard is the people of Israel. The people uh, of Israel would have known this analogy because it's, it's an, analogy, an analogy used a lot in the Old Testament, uh, most clearly in Isaiah 5. The vineyard is, is God's people, Israel, and the owner is God. The owner loves his vineyard. He's tended to his vineyard. He's, he's helped it flourish. But the time's come for him to leave, and so he puts tenants in charge of the vineyard. Now, the tenants in this parable are the leaders of Israel. The owner couldn't wait for harvest time. He wanted to enjoy the different varieties of grape, the Cab Sav, the uh, Merlot, the Shiraz. I actually looked it up. They are grown in Israel. Um, He couldn't wait to enjoy the fruit of the vineyard. And by the way, the fruit of the vineyard in the parable um, is... uh, the just and righteous lives of the people of Israel. So if the vineyard's Israel, then the fruit is their their sort of just society and then righteous lives. Um, So finally, harvest season arrives. The owner wanted a taste of the harvest, beautifully ripe. But the tenants saw the, the owner's servant coming. And what do they do? Of course, they beat him. They send him away empty handed. Uh, Verse 11, the owner sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Now, if you're thinking, what's with these tenants? They're crazy. Then you're tracking with the parable. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I remember um, the word soliloquy from year 10 English, I think it was. This is a beautiful little soliloquy. By God, what shall I do? Martin Luther, a guy we sort of look up to, is a reformer back from the 16th century. He gave a sermon on this passage. And when this point came up, he said, if I were God and the world had treated me the way that it had treated him, I'd kick the wretched thing to pieces. That's what Martin Luther would do. God asks, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. The father sends his beloved son, unarmed 
and unescorted? Is that total stupidity? Meet Hussein bin Talal, the king of Jordan, the late king of Jordan. Um, so in the early 1980s, King Hussein was informed by his security police that there were 75 um, army officers just about to meet at, at the, the barracks. They were, they were meeting to work out how to overthrow him, the king, to take um, rule of the, the kingdom of Jordan. Now, his, his security officers, they were trying to convince Hussein to, um, to surround the barracks and have them all arrested. After a somber pause, the king... Oh, may as well keep it up. The king refused and said, bring me a small helicopter. Helicopter came. He went in the helicopter with the, the pilot and um, they landed on the flat roof of the barracks. The king told the pilot, if you hear gunshots, fly away without me at once. So unarmed, the um, uh, king Hussein walked down two flights of stairs into the barracks and met their the army officials. Gentlemen, he said, it has come to my attention that you're, you're meeting tonight to finalise your plans to overthrow the government, to take over the country and install a military dictator. If you do this, the army is going to break apart and the country will be plunged into civil war. Tens of thousands of innocent lives will be taken. Then he said, here I am, kill me and proceed. That way, only one man will die. This is a true story. After a moment of stunned silence, the rebels rushed forward to kiss the hands of King Hussein and they pledged loyalty to him for life. Now, King Hussein here opted for total vulnerability. He opted for total vulnerability. He acted as a noble king. And so too the owner in the parable. He's making himself absolutely vulnerable. He's acting as a noble king would act. It ended well for King Hussein, but back to the parable. Uh, verse 14. But when the tenants saw the son, they t- talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. One theologian I was reading in preparation for tonight called this parable a parable of God's love. I've never heard it described that way. Another called it a parable of the owner's nobility. In the face of hard-heartedness, this owner persisted. He persisted and persisted. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet. Maybe this is uncomprehensible love. I mean, this is something we'd never do. Often for us, the slightest wrong done against us can sort of do our head in. This owner persisted and in the end sent his son. Now, I came up with this quote as well. I'm just sharing the fruit of my study during the week. I wanted to share it with you because it's so good. This is the love of God. If you reject him, he answers you with tears. So that was last week. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. 
So here we have the tenants, the, the, the wicked tenants faced with the love of God. Will anything stop the love of God? Well, we, we, we what's the word? We, we make him, we, we wound him and he bleeds for our cleansing. We, we kill him, but his death is for our redemption. We try to bury him, get rid of him. And he rises to bring resurrection. This is the unstoppable love of God. This is the love of God we, we meet uh, to, to sing about every week. The unstoppable love of God. Nothing can stop this love. Except one thing, but we'll, we'll talk about that. God's the noble king. Owner of the vineyard, just like King Hussein. We're not done yet. We're nearly there. Uh, verse, I think it's 15. Now, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. So, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, we, we talk about God's love and grace. And that's what we celebrate. But that does not evaporate God's judgment. It's been a constant theme in these, in these chapters. And when it comes to judgment, God's judgment, I think it's a potential Stepford Wives moment for us. We sort of don't like talking about the judgment of God. We, we, we don't like thinking about it. It is. It's hard to think about but we're tempted to make a step for God. We're tempted to cut it out of our sort of portrayal of God. But God's a living God. He's not the God of our own making. And so that's why we stick with it. Because that's what he's told us in his word. So yes, God's love is unstoppable. Uh, we wound him, he bleeds for our cleansing, we kill him, he dies for our redemption, uh, we bury him, he rises for our resurrection. But, but, we can reject his love. We can shrug our shoulders at it and go, who cares? Or we can say, oh, as if that's what I need. We can close the door to God's love so that it doesn't enter. So verse 17, Jesus looked directly at them and asked. So the word directly in the Greek is very obvious. He looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Now to reject Jesus is to reject God at his most vulnerable it's to disregard God at his most generous. Out of the depths of his graciousness, he sends his son into a messed up world. And the son is God's handout in amnesty to a world gone mad. To reject him, to want Jesus done away with, to not want him in our lives, well, the question must be asked, what is left God sent his beloved son. What else can he do? But bring justice. So then immediately in verse 19, we see the parable acted out in reality. 
the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. So pulling the threads together, Jesus clears the temple and he tells this dangerously clear parable because he cares. He cares for the, the, the people of Israel who are being abused by the, this corrupt leadership. And he cares for the leadership themselves. He's, he's trying to put it in such a way that will make them wake up. And I talked about how we need to be ready to hear the hard word of God in our reading of the Bible. God's word, God's living word. But tonight the hard word is this. Do not reject the cornerstone. Do not reject the cornerstone. The cornerstone is Jesus. The cornerstone is God's beloved son sent into a world totally undeserving. We can't miss the depth of God's grace in doing that. But at the same time, we need to make sure that we bring in that beloved son into our lives to put him at the the center, or to use the analogy, the corner as the cornerstone of our lives. We need to have the Son of God, Jesus, at the center of our lives. We need to make our decisions in reference to Him. Uh, we need to love Him above all things. And of course, we, we love our beloved King who loved us at the ultimate cost to himself. That's the type of king we have. When God in Christ is in his rightful place in our lives, our lives are built on solid ground. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are astounded at the depth of your love for us that you would send your beloved son into a world so corrupt and, and messed up, so undeserving, that you would do that for our salvation, that you would do it for us so that we could be made new. We, we pray, Father, that you continue to help us put Jesus at the center of our lives. Please help us make decisions uh, in reference to him. Please help us love your son as much as you do. In Jesus' name, amen.